0: Hello and welcome to the Net OGs, an original podcast series brought to you by Duration Media. I'm your host, Andy Batkin. This series asks and answers the question, what was the internet like before the internet was a thing and who were the original players? Each week I'll be joined by an OG, not an old guy or gal, but the true original gangsters of the internet. Grab a drink, sit back and learn how the largest medium in the world was built, and listen to never before heard stories from some of the visionaries that formed the first internet media companies and digital ad agencies. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Martin Nissenholtz. Martin is no doubt an OG and probably has more digital media experience than anyone in the world. He was the founder of the interactive marketing group at Olga V. Mather in 1983, more than 10 years before the first ads hit the web. In 1995, Martin was recruited to be the president of the New York Times electronic media company, where he led that team that created NewYorkTimes.com and successfully transitioned the Times into a powerhouse digital media player. He spent 17 years at the Times and served on the Times executive committee. In 2001, he founded the Online Publishers Association, today known as DCN, the trade association for high quality digital content providers. More recently, Martin was a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where he co-created Riptide, an oral history of the collision of journalism and digital technology. He's been a venture partner at First Mark Capital. He taught at Columbia Journalism School for three years and for the past five years was a professor of the practice of digital communication at Boston University, my alma mater. We look forward to hearing the early stories from one of the most highly respected digital media executives. Welcome, Martin. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. So Martin, before uh, we get into your impressive resume and career as a Net OG, you started off as an assistant professor and research scientist at NYU. How did that experience help you prepare for your career path at Ogilvy And then we'll move on to the New York Times, of course. Yeah, well,
1: that that really defined my career at Ogilvy because um, when I was recruited to be on the research team for one of the very early uh, digital media experiments in the late 70s, it was 1979, um, there there weren't really any people working in this field. And so um, when Ogilvy decided that it needed help in, in terms of getting into the field there were very few people around who they could call on, so they got me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what were the early
0: days like at at Old were, were, were you uh, recruited specifically to start this group, or were, were you doing other things before you you, you formulated the interactive marketing? No,
1: group? I was recruited specifically for this. It, it, the catalyst for this. So, I was, you know, I was working on a bunch of research projects, principally funded by the National Science Foundation at New York University. Um, The the Interactive Telecommunications Program, which which is today one of the largest and most important programs in the country uh, for graduate work in in our field, um, started in 79. So so I, I came in both to do research and to teach in that program. So what happened is, you know, during that period, com- the commercialization of this stuff began to occur. And by this stuff, I really mean very, very early experiments in uh, digital communication, principally bridging the telephone network and the, and the television. I mean, that th- think of it as, you know, cable television way before, you know, th- th- there was a smart, you know, digital box in your house, okay? And, and so, Jerry Levin, who had pioneered, uh, who had created or co-created HBO, had a vision of using a, a, an entire cable channel to download, you know, digital information to the TV set. So, it could be anything from uh, weather forecasts, news, you know, encyclopedia information, anything you can imagine in terms of information, could be delivered and you know the display device was the TV. Ogilvy was his agency or one of his agencies and so he went to Ogilvy and said hey you know you got to help me out here. I'm going to create the content for this but it's going to need to be advertiser supported and Ogilvy really didn't know anything about this. Why would they um and and so they did a kind of a search around the country and and they found me and you know brought me in and um the, the first three clients were sort of in the bag in a way because um, Time Inc. and, 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 and Ogilvy had sort of already approached them, uh, General Foods, which was later sold to Kraft, uh, TWA, which of course is no longer in business. And, okay. and I, I, I believe the third client was American Express. So what, what, what were you pitching these clients. Well, what we, we, so, so we were pitching them, advertising the earliest forms of advertising on Jerry's time teletext uh, system, um, and it's hard to it's hard to imagine today. I mean, if you go on and Google mm-hmm. time teletext or Google teletext, you'll see the kinds of screens that that we were building. Not, not specifically necessarily that we had built. I mean, obviously, Time Inc. built you know, thousands of screens for this thing, but um, most of them were informational. I mean, he was really, he also had a a vision, (laughs) you you know, think of this as being 80, 81, 82 timeframe. We started in 83, once he had already gotten the thing sort of up and going, Um, you know, he wanted to deliver games to the box. So, you know, gaming was already sort of in its nascent stages. Um, so lots and lots of stuff, but it was just very, very early. And, um, and unfortunately uh, it, 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 didn't, it didn't succeed. Um, now keep in mind, this was the era when, you know, Steve Jobs and, and, and Steve Wozniak were out with the Apple and the IBM PC had just come on stream. So there was this second sort of quasi-hobbyist market emerging in the computing arena, right? So you had these two things going on. You had the TV set as a potential uh, end user device, and everyone had a TV set, so that would be the natural place to play in a way. But then you had this tiny little market of personal computer hobbyists, and nobody much paid very much attention to them in the early 80s. I I was always very interested in, in, in that area. Because there were certain services that that I had already signed up for and I, I just had a sense that, that, that they were going to ultimately be successful. One of them was called CompuServe. So I'm curious. So
0: you sit with, let's take American Express as an example, and you show them this teletext weather reports, etc. Yeah was their first reaction, this isn't really television. Is it, is, you know, why am I doing this? Is it research? I mean, yeah, it's research.
1: So, so, you know, let's, let's take General Foods because it's probably a better, a better example. So there was a guy at General Foods named Dick Helstein and he was tasked with doing the, you know, doing the early research on these things. And General Foods was already publishing a lot of stuff, believe it or not, they were publishing recipes, they were. They had. Um, they had this character called the Kool Aid Kid. I mean, so so they had they had content, right? I mean, this this was really the first digital content. And and so what we started to do was we started to create, you know, re- recipes. I mean, you have you have huge recipe databases. The Times has one, in fact, on 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 the web today. But. You know, back then we just we started to create screens of recipes and we started to create games with the Kool-Aid kid. And so it was really turning the advertiser more, in, more into a content provider than an inter- interrupter of programs. Obviously all advertising is content, but I mean, these, you had to select this stuff. I mean, the interactivity, the challenge of interactivity from the very beginning has always been, how do you, how do you make people want to get the advertising and and we can talk about that you know in it's in its late stages later but but back then it was you know creating content that people wanted to access principally for general foods recipe content and TWA you, uh, I'm sorry no no please finish yeah no no I'm just so TWA had a, an in-flight magazine and it mm-hmm. had some really sort of interesting articles we basically excerpted these articles and and so We were taking the stuff that they were creating in analog media and transforming them into digital media. And this was in 83, 84. So you're sitting with General Foods and,
0: you know, Dick says, okay, this is interesting, or, you know, I'll give it a shot.
1: Did they pay for it? Well, they, they, yes, they they paid us a fee. I mean, we we had to, you know, we had to, charge something for it or else, you know, they wouldn't have cared about it, frankly. <laughs> um, and I, I don't remember precisely whether the media companies, and it wasn't just time, by the way, um, Knight Ritter, the, the very large mm-hmm. newspaper chain at that time, you know, owned the Miami Herald and other newspapers, Philadelphia Inquirer, other newspapers, they created something called Viewtron. Mm-hmm. Um, the Times Mirror Corporation created something called Gateway. So th- these were nascent services coming out of big media, and um, you know whether they actually paid a media fee or not at that stage is 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 unclear to me. But the point is, what Dick was interested in was the consumer. I mean, what he was basically trying to find out was do consumers like this? If they like it, are they going to switch out of traditional media? Um, How much time are they going to spend with it? What do they like? I mean, what can we be creating that that will be appealing to them? So, you know, there were all sorts of research questions that, you know, were, were relevant back then. And we, you know, we were attempting to answer them.
0: So what other platforms as you moved uh, forward in, in the interactive marketing group, what other early platforms did you, you guys play with?
1: Well, the reason I mentioned the PC is because what, it's sort of like evolution. The, the video text and teletext systems that I've just referenced came to evolutionary dead ends. The, the, the consumer either wasn't ready or didn't like the services or for whatever set of reasons, basically rejected these boxes. Okay. And, and it was sort of like the tortoise and the, ha- and the hare in a way because while the telephone and, 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 and television were in virtually a hundred percent of households. So, you know, obvious place to put this thing. The PC was sort of like tortoise-like getting, you know more and more important and more and more important. And so by the time, by the time these services cratered in the 1985, 86 timeframe yeah, you started to see you're starting to see some interesting moves on the PC side. A, a little company called Quantum Link, which I think was a game, a gaming platform for the Atari computer, I think. Okay. That Quantum Link was renamed something called America Online. Mm-hmm. And a young guy was recruited from, from PG, a guy named Steve Case to come in and initially be the head of marketing for that company. He, he later obviously became the CEO of it, but, but so in 86, you know, America Online starts to get going. The, the, big, the big players were continuing to invest. IBM and Sears invested in something called Prodigy. Um, as I said, you know, there were hobbyist services that had been around for a while. CompuServe began to grow. So as an example, CompuServe created something called the Electronic Mall, which was a a kind of very early version of Amazon. Um, And um, so, you know, in that instance, you know, we we were working with clients to to literally sell things through this this nascent e-commerce service. So, you know, those are the sorts of things that we began to do. And of course, you know, obviously there were ATMs out there automatic, you know, ATMs, cash machines. So, you know, (laughs) they, they, they were, they were just getting going in banks and, and um, so we were working with banks on the user interfaces, you know, of of those, of those ATMs. And, and, um, and, 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 you know, what happened with the interactive marketing group is that as we went more and more through the 1980s, we came, we became much more of a software development company than anything that you would recognize as a traditional advertising agency. So that that's an interesting point. So,
0: t- tell me about how the interactive marketing group was perceived internally. Did you get um, that's a
1: great question
0: buy-in from you know the the senior management and 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 how did the the you know your your peers. Peers, so to speak, your colleagues, you know, who are traditional ad agency, ad agency folks um, react to all of this.
1: Well, th- there was a kind of a visionary leader at Ogilvy in, in that timeframe named Graham Phillips. And um, he, he was very supportive of, of, of us and of almost anything that, 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 that he thought could potentially um, lead to uh, a digital future. Um, he was a, you know, almost sui generis in the advertising industry. In my view, um, I worked for the head of media, a guy named Larry Cole, who was always incredibly supportive of us. Um, and, you know, came along with the pitches. I mean, this is a guy who was responsible for, you know, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars in television advertising. I mean, so he, he didn't need to pay any attention to me and he paid a lot of attention to me. I think where the problems were, and this is always true, by the way, it's true. It was true at Ogilvy. It was true at the New York times is that the, the folks on the ground who are much more shorter term thinkers, they they tend oftentimes to be more hostile and don't, don't necessarily think, um, you know, change is a good thing, particularly if it's not, you know, in in their court. But I, I would say overall, um, you know, I didn't pay much attention to that. I mean, I just I just did my job, and the proof was in the pudding, in a way. I mean, if we had clients and people were paying us to do this this research work, we were in good shape. We always basically broke even, or did 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 more than that. And by 1989 or 90. You know, things were really starting to get much, much better uh, for us. There was a there was a three-year period where it was very tough, but by the late '80s, things started to really click. And, and so, how did you build your team?
0: Uh, was it f- folks at Ogilvy that no. that peeked in the door and said, "What's going on in this room? You know, I'd like no. to learn more."
1: V- very few people at Ogilvy. Could, could have cared less. I mean, and I understand that. I mean, they were making their careers in television advertising principally. And I mean, they had no time to think about this stuff. I, and I don't, you know, it's perfect. That's perfectly natural. No, it was it was people who were, you know, everyone, every, everybody in that timeframe who came into the organization came in for a different reason, but mostly it was because they sensed that something new was happening, and they wanted to be a part of that. And even if they didn't know precisely what it was, they were just interested in that. And there are some people who are always going to be that way. Um, and you know, in a sense, it was a group of of, of weirdos. Um, but uh, you know, but you know, my being the head weirdo. But it, it was it, it was a great group of people, and. Um, uh, you know, as I say, by the late 80s, you know, as, as you're developing more and more business, and now you've got dozens of people instead of just a few, it becomes much easier to recruit people. And at that point, more people from the agency, more some of the more adventuresome people from the agency started to raise their hands. So I'm trying to remember the, the timeline.
0: So were you still at Ogilvy when the full service network uh and Cerritos projects were were created?
1: Yes I mean we we were the content creators for the Viacom ATT project in Cerritos so that they were my largest client for four years I mean I think I think that began in around 1990 the planning of it and um it was still going strong when I left in 1994 so that was a big project and um an exciting a really exciting project um Bell Labs you know was was building the technology um and and Jerry again Jerry Levin's project full service network that was a uh, i believe in in orlando. orlando that came a little bit later um but it it was still in that time frame yeah yeah and it, you know so so
0: d- tell our listeners who who may not know uh what the cerritos the AT&T Cerritos uh, project was.
1: Right, so, well, AT&T and Viacom were partnering to try to figure out whether not only could you engineer but could you um, introduce a service that is very much like the cable television service you have today, Um, X streaming, right? I mean, by cable television service, I really mean video on demand, i mean hundreds of channels you know and so it, it, it was a it was a, a vision of of something that ultimately actually did happen it was just very early on and so you know the the i think i think i think the time had hired silicon graphics to build their set-top boxes, and I want to say they were like ten thousand dollars each. I mean, so so the economics of it, right, so the economics of it were kind of absurd, but I, I think it was it was Jerry's thought. I certainly don't want to put words in his mouth, but might have been his thought that learning kind of how to package and present and and actually deliver this stuff um, was. Was important because ultimately economies of scale would kick in, and this thing would become pervasive. And of course, he was right. So
0: it was talked about as interactive television. Is that simply put? Was that the term, or how, how did you guys pitch it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think with the, interactive television um, had it had a slightly different connotation. Interactive television was a bit more. Um, Gaming oriented. It, it, it involved some of it involved, you know, some of it was stupid and 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 again evolutionary dead ends. It's always worth experimenting, I guess. But um, it 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 it, it involved like you know sometimes creating alternate endings for narrative stuff like that. Um, the other side of it was, of course, you know, again early uh, attempts at e-commerce, right? So, um. Uh, I I remember around 1990, 91, I I think Barry Diller had invested in, in HSN and he came around because, you know, uh, he's, you know, Diller is, 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 is really one of the most creative media executives, possibly the most creative media executive around. And, and he, you know, he had a, a very, very strong sense that, um, that really digital was, was about transactions. And I think probably invested in HSN or, or acquired HSN, I think knowing that ultimately th- th- this would be a kind of, you know, interim, I don't wanna say technologies, but service to something much, much more interactive. Um, now, Jeff Bezos obviously was the one to exploit that ultimately, but, 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 you know, there weren't too many, you know, mainstream media executives coming around in 1990 curious about what we were doing. Let's just put it that way. I mean, <laughs> m- most people couldn't have cared less. Okay, so
0: let's segue to now we're, you know, vis-a-vis the calendar. Uh, the internet uh, starts to uh, become uh, a thing.
1: Uh, How did you get to the New York Times? Well, the the New York Times, um, I mean, that's an easy answer. You you know, a headhunter called me. Um, (laughs) I I had, because of the work I was doing with at and I had been recruited to join one of the baby bells, Ameritech, that was also building a full-service network in the Chicago region. And um, my job was to populate that network with programming. And, um, and, and and so, you know, I moved to Chicago with my family and I, I had been there probably about four months when the Times headhunter called a guy named Jack Nordman. And, um, and at that point, I mean, I had only been there for four months, I wasn't ready to leave. And so um, I, I actually referred him to, to two or three other people. And um, a couple of months later he called back and he said, look, you know, why don't you just, what you're in New York a lot, why don't you just come by, meet with these two guys, um, Russ Lewis, who at the time was president of the newspaper and a fellow named Joe Lelleveld, who was the executive editor. And, and, and you really have nothing to lose. Um, and so I, I said, yeah, happy to do that. And so I did it and it was sort of love at first sight. I mean, I really, I, I, I really just almost immediately became interested in in this role. And so that's how I got to the New York Times.
0: I want to take a quick second to thank our sponsor, Duration Media, an ad tech software company that creates revenue generation solutions for publishers. Duration Media finds, mines, and monetizes only highly viewable ad impressions, which finally makes a product that's good for publishers and advertisers. For more information, visit their website at durationmedia.net. So just- at, at at the ATT Viacom Cerritos uh, project, what kind of content were you guys creating?
1: Okay, so we what we had done is we 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 basically divided the team up, I think in in, in, in into about five different um, areas, content areas or, or subject matter areas. Um you know, a guy named Mark Kravitz, who had come from um, uh, no Michael Zimblist. I'm sorry, Michael mm-hmm. Zimblist, who had come from Disney Imagineering, was responsible for the gaming channel. And so he was going out and sourcing people to start to try to create game, you know, video games for the for for this network. Um, there was, uh, you know, an informational pod where people were going out to. Um, places like Encyclopedia Britannica to try and get them to create for this, for that channel. There was a news pod, which which involved going out to places like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And so there were different pods. And I, I, th- I think you can probably imagine what they were. What we hadn't done at that point is, is a video on demand pod. The, the, I don't I don't. I don't um, think that we were quite ready to deliver, you know, full length, f- you know, full bandwidth video on demand to this audience yet. But but we're going back twenty, you know, thirty mm. years. A lot of this is a little bit fuzzy in my head, so okay. you'll have to excuse me. No, no, <laughs> that's fine. That's fine.
0: All right. So so New York Times. So now we're uh, in. 1993, 94, um, uh, no, 95, the times recruited me in, in mid 95, 95. Okay. Here we are uh, in 1995 and you're at the New York times and starting to build a plan to build newyorktimes.com. Uh, tell, tell the listeners how this all came about.
1: Right. So I, I joined the times in, in, uh, uh I believe it was June of 1995. Um, there, there were um, I think three or four guys who had already begun to um, sort of spec out what the website might look look like I, I mean my I'm coming in remember from a digital media I, I wasn't I wasn't a journalist I'm, I'm coming in from the digital media side of the business and so for me the, the main reference point was Yahoo um, you know uh, y- Yahoo was a, a kind of a Directory of resources um, on the World Wide Web. Um, it, it, you know, I, I don't precisely remember the the, the exact date when when um, Yahoo started its business vertical, but but it, you know it had it had it had done a deal with Reuters and um, you know it was running ASCII text, you know, updated constantly. Um, and, and and it was just it just seemed to be very much of the internet to me in the sense that it was extremely useful and obviously useful is good right the times had created a prototype essentially an electronic newspaper i mean it had taken the new york times newspaper and it had translated it onto the screen it 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 it, it and and You know the the first time I I saw this thing, I said, "Well, this is a really beautiful rendition." I mean, I had you know very strong design background, you know, had been doing this at Ogilvy for a very long time, so I kind of knew what I liked, and I liked this a lot. And so there was kind of a struggle inside of me between you know should we should we innovate and do something different that that isn't you know, a times newspaper on a PC or should we basically just simply take the times and try and move it over to the PC? What, you know, what people would derogatorily refer to as shovelware, right? In that era. And I mean, realistically, this is, (laughs) this is kind of a, a fight or a conversation I'm mostly having with myself because I think culturally, the, the Times could never have done what I wanted kind of inside to do, which was, you know, to create something quite different from, from what I saw. Um, it just wasn't gonna happen because the Times wanted to put its newspaper on the internet, which is perfectly natural, right? I mean, that's what you would do if you were the New York Times. But it, it just, honestly, Andy, it just, it, at the time, you know, you're talking about narrowband communications. You're talking about irresolute, crude monitors. You're talking, you know, I mean, the, the thing was was so much worse than reading a newspaper that you know it, it didn't seem like it was worth doing to me. Whereas, you know, Yahoo was really this useful thing, and obviously, it was it was a a, a a startup. I mean, it was a, a new company. And my thinking was, well, you know, maybe the Times should buy Yahoo or, or just simply replicate it with its brand and, you know, and become kind of the gateway to the, the internet, sort of edit the web instead of, you know, editing the world, edit the World Wide Web. Um, but it just, it just it, you know, that impulse just didn't, didn't go anywhere. It, 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 we had to do, I think, what, what we did, which was to take the Times newspaper and do the best possible job that we could, could do online with it. And that, and that ultimately is what we did. And I think in retrospect, that was exactly the right thing to do. Um, whatever instinct I had, you know, um, to try and replicate a directory probably wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have worked culturally. I don't think the consumer would necessarily have, have, have figured it out. So we put the newspaper online, basically. The, the second major decision was, okay, well, you're putting the newspaper online, it's the most expensive newspaper in the country, how much you're gonna charge? And when I walked in the door, there were three pricing plans. One was $9.95 a month, one was $14.95 a month, one was $19.95 a month. And ultimately they wanted this thing to be advertiser supported. I mean, newspapers, were not at that time circulation driven, they were advertising driven. 80% of the revenue was advertising revenue, principally from classified advertising. Not so much classified at the times, but in general. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so uh, you know, my team and I sat down and, and we basically said, you know, if we're ever gonna get an audience for this, we, we need, to, we need to, 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 to give it away. We need it to be free initially. Um, remember Yahoo News was free and it was excellent. It was really Reuters, right? I mean, you know, Reuters didn't have anything to fear because they didn't have a consumer product. So they were running the newswire. I mean, they've got 2,300 journalists. I mean, this is not, not, this is not a trivial news organization. There were a bunch of other, CNN had just come up for free. Um, I believe that there was a, there was a, um, a, 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 a plan at that point, although it, it it later kind of fell apart for NBC to partner with Microsoft, which later became MSNBC. So there were all sorts of things going on, and all of them were free. so my my thinking was, well, okay, let's let's try and build an audience here. And the team was very much behind that. The team was very much behind that and and um, and 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 so we, you know we went we went to to um, to the guys who were, you know, ultimately making decisions. Ultimately it would have been Arthur Sulzberger who was the publisher at that time. And we we, we provided a rationale and he understood it and, and he, uh, you know, he agreed. Um, now that has subsequently been referred to in the journalism business as the original sin, right? That, that, you know, if we only hadn't given away the New York Times, everything would be fine. And that is is something I, you know, completely reject. I think it's a, a, a really bad, bad assumption. Um, you know, not, not only did we ultimately transition to a pay model and transition incredibly successfully, but, but we transitioned on the back of, you know, almost 60 million unique users. I mean, The Times was, was generally a niche product and we had, we had become the largest newspaper website in the world by far. And so, you know, I think building that big base Having, you know, that must buy status in the advertising industry at the time, having, you know, you know, a lot of advertising revenue when we turned on the pay model, ultimately, in 2011, all of that built up to something that became, you know, even more successful, uh, you know, ultimately, as a pay site, didn't, I don't think it hurt us in the least. In fact, I think it was the, the foundation on which everything else was built.
0: So you, you, you referred to the the team uh, in the beginning and and still, you know, 94, 95, 96, even, there were not a lot of people who had internet or digital media experience. How did you recruit the team? How many people were there? Who who were the key players and
1: what industries did they come from? Yeah. Well, so this was a kind of third major decision, you know, obviously, you know, in an internet company, the most important, the only important thing really are the people, because you know, they're fairly asset light, um, as certainly as startups. Um, obviously Amazon is anything but asset light, but you know, as a startup, you, you don't you, you, your, your people are 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 99% of, of of the of the equation. And you know, the times had been in business for 150 years and and so the, the culture at the New York Times was, was certainly very, very, very strong. Um, had I brought in a team of people, and by then, as I say, I mean, I knew lots and lots of people who were working in this area, you know, recruiting from AOL, recruiting from other places. Um, you know, had I brought in, I think it would have, the body would have just rejected, you know, the body would have rejected the, uh, the organism. and so my decision and my hope was to build a kind of mixed team where, where people, you know, the, the same kind of adventuresome people who were coming over the wall at Ogilvy, those same types of people would come over the wall at the New York Times. And, and, and yet we would be recruiting people from the outside as well, potentially people who had, you know, some, some digital experience. And, and by mixing the, the folks up, we would have, you know, we would catalyze a kind of of magic, and I think we really did. I, I mean, I'm very, very proud of that team. I think it was. We still have reunions. I mean, we we basically the the the, the we, we had a Zoom reunion, you know, a month ago. Um, so, you know, that team is still coherent, and some of the folks who ultimately were on that that team in the early years. I mean, yeah, as a as a, as an example, and. You know, Catherine Levine just became the, the, the head of all Meredith's, um, president of Meredith Publishing. So, I mean, this is not, you know, p- people have done really well coming out of there. And obviously she's not the only one but probably shouldn't have mentioned her because everybody else is gonna be <laughs> pissed off at me. Sorry, <laughs> um, I can't mention everybody. But, but Catherine is top of mind because she was just promoted. <laughs>
0: That's great. So um,
1: what,
0: what were, you talk about Yahoo, and I, I remember, uh, I'm thrilled that you brought that up and that they were a great example because we were the ones that wrote their business plan and we were the ones that actually sold all their media for the first two years of their life. Uh, but it wasn't easy. Uh, the, the advertisers uh, that we went to in the beginning, the only way we thought we could get this done was to sell it more as a research project because they, they didn't understand it. Uh, did you have an advantage being the New York Times? Was there built-in advertisers that you went to, or how did you guys get started in, in developing the, the business model?
1: Oh, well, we absolutely had an advantage being the New York Times. I mean, the New York Times opens whatever doors you want to open. Um, but that, and when the door opens I mean you know the, the we again I had been selling digital advertising for f- 15 years <laughs> before this start so I knew how to do that um and I think that's part of the reason that that I was brought in because you know they wanted they wanted an advertising model at the time and you know when I say selling advertising I don't mean commercials it wasn't it wasn't it had nothing to do with traditional advertising. It, it was from the very beginning at Ogilvy, creating advertising programming for people and placing that programming in a way that allowed people in some context to wanna get it. So there was it was creating value for the advertiser and in turn creating value for the consumer. Um, to your point, I mean, we always, because there weren't enough people using this stuff, we always sold it as research. And so the first thing that we did at the times was create something called the partnership program. And we said to the the client, look, there's this new thing called the world wide web, the internet, whatever you want to call it. And, and, you know, it's very few people are using it right now, but it's probably going to amount to something. You probably should learn about it. And so come learn with us. And we're, we, we, we made the decision instead of we made the decision instead of charging people we would register users that was a kind of permission marketing uh deal that we made with the consumer so you didn't have to pay but you had to register and that meant giving us some information it meant giving us you know t- what today in a in a you know in a facebook driven world is mm-hmm. ridiculously crude data but but it it was more data than anyone else had so You know, we could go to an advertiser and say, look, we we can segment the audience by zip code. We could segment them by gender, um, you know, and and therefore you can begin to learn how different types of people react to your messaging. And by the way, you can create different messaging. We can target. We had worked with a guy who had founded a company called um, Real Network. Real network, real no. That was real media. I think it was called real media. Um, and he built he built an ad server for us that could that allowed us to to segment to actually segment the the advertising. Um, Double click was you know was the other was the other ad server. But they had no real interest at that point in in working that closely with us.
0: So it's funny that you mentioned the ad server because that was going to be my next question. Is it technically? Uh... The you know the the setup here. So you, you you go and you you you're pitching advertisers, and you're pitching banner ads, right? That was the only thing at that time. The, the video was almost non-existent in, at this point.
1: Oh, it was non-existent. Right. No, it was non-existent.
0: <laughs> so um, did did you guys help them build banners? Did the, did the did the advertisers? then know, okay, we're gonna get our agency involved to create these banners, or how, how did that, cause you referred it to
1: earlier as content. Right? So how did these banners get developed? Well, no, the, ba- the but the banners pointed to content, right? So the, the banners just simply pointed to, to content. It, 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 they didn't exist in a vacuum. Um, uh, they, they, you know, they were meant to bring you somewhere. Um, it, it, you know, in most cases, advertisers didn't have websites. Remember, right? <laughs> Credible right. as that might seem today, it just was true. So we were, you know, so um, I mean, it, it was a choice. I mean, we had we had a, a small team of people who would who would create these things. Um, and, and, but you know, remember the the, the agencies. You know, the, there were nascent adver- interactive advertising agencies. Obviously, in addition to Ogilvy Interactive um, by then, um, who were also, who were also working with clients. So, you know, there, there was a little nascent ecosystem, you know, kind of beginning to emerge. And, and so it, cr- cr- the creative side wasn't all that challenging. Um, it, it was challenging in the sense that, um, you know, people didn't want to invest the money, <laughs> you know, that's the challenge. I mean, you know, it was, it was viewed, you know it's certainly you know not a productive marketing expense and that's why we went to the research side because the media folks it wouldn't make any sense to them why should it i mean there were no users
0: <laughs> okay so we're we're now moving towards the dot com going dot gone or the crash you know yeah. in 2000 yeah that was a
1: problem uh
0: you guys are in business you know four or five years now uh, was management really supportive of the business, this sort of you know digital first division that was you know sort of being formed and, and developed? Um,
1: yes, I mean, look, the, the there's a, there are a couple of different ways to answer that question. Um, I, I will say Ar- Arthur Sulzberger was always from the beginning committed to this future. I mean, in my job interview, he said, you know, I just built, we just built the Edison, it um, wasn't Edison, it was the College Point plant, the, the huge printing plant next to LaGuardia Airport. And and, and it was, I think it was a, over a billion dollars. He said, this is the last printing plant we're ever gonna build. It was in 1995. I mean, there aren't, weren't a lot of people basically saying that in 1995. 19- and he said, De- definitely the last printing plant we're ever going to build. Um, you guys are going to be the future of the company. And so he, he never really wavered in that. W- where the issue was, was more in the details. I mean, you know, the, 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 there was never any thought, certainly on Arthur, Arthur's point, to shut us down, for example. And, and by the way, a lot of people did get shut down during that era. But you know, the, the, his business management naturally was saying, look, you know, th- th- these guys are costing us a lot of money. Th- th- they've got to lower their burn. And in comparison with what lots of people were spending and in comparison to what the Times was making at that point, it was a rounding error. But we, we ended up laying off 40% of our team and shutting whole divisions down um, in, in, in 2001. Um, we had acquired one of the first social networks called a Buzz. I mean, I had a thought at that time that um, that the Times audience was was a bit like think about you know obviously many more than this, but think about fifty or sixty or eighty thousand people in a stadium, and you have all these people in the same place and yet they can't really talk to each other. W- what if they could? W- what if instead of having just you know, a thousand experts in the newsroom, you had 80,000 people who could, um, who could become points of intelligence in the network? And so, um, you know, Abuzz a was a Q&A service, an early version of Yahoo Answers or a better example is Quora. You know the, mm-hmm. the I don't know whether you use Quora, but it's mm-hmm. it's a, a really good good service, um, and and, and so th- my thought was well we could we could build that, and so we had to shut that down. I mean literally like a year after we bought it, and that was always something I felt terrible about. Um, you know we had to lay off lots of people in 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 the organization, and, and so the to answer your question. No, we didn't shut it down. No one wanted to shut it down, but, but, you know, it, it was obviously taken. It was, it was paired way back, you know, so, which I think probably was a mistake. Wasn't. How, how, how much is curious because a lot of
0: the the smaller players, their, their revenue literally, you know, went to zero. So mm-hmm. What what percentage of of dip did you guys see in
1: the in that first year after the crash? I'd say probably you know fifty percent, forty percent dip, something very significant. Maybe not quite that much. Um, it was certainly in that range. I mean, it, you know, it, it it in just that, and I'm talking about just that year, because we we were determined to become profitable. Um, by the end of two thousand one, and we did. Um, I, I think it was probably between the third quarter of two thousand and the you know the the, the fourth quarter of two thousand one that that things were really at the, the kind of in the lowest at the lowest point. So, when talking
0: to advertisers at that point, what was the pitch that? Well, those companies did go dot gone but the audience hasn't left people still well, use yeah, the internet
1: yeah you brought you bring up a really important point so in 2001 one of the things that I'm very very proud of having done is 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 to found the online publishers association and the reason we founded OPA which is today DCN digital content next and it which is the largest trade organization for for, for publishers on the internet today. Um, it's run by a guy named Jason Kint. Um, the reason we founded that is exactly what you're saying. I mean, think of, think of sort of two, two curves. One is usage at nytimes.com. That's going straight up to the Northeast. And the other is the NASDAQ market. And that's obviously collapsing. But these are two separate curves. The consumer is going straight up all through this time the financial curve is going down but if you're you know if you're building a business and you're following the consumer particularly the advertising business you know certainly if the consumer decided hey i don't like this i don't want this anymore then i would have said well let's shut the whole thing down obviously the consumer i mean i've been through that before with video tech, so let's shut it down the consumer was was showing more interest than ever before throughout the whole thing. To you know, it's you know the great tragedy of two thousand one. You know 9-11, You know that was you know on the internet that was a, a huge event. It it, it broke it, it broke our you know our, our servers. So you know we 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 um we were not seeing you know, any fall off on the consumer side. So I, I, we created this thing. I I went to essentially 10 of my friends and I said, look, each of you guys have to pitch in $60,000 and we're gonna hire a bunch of research people and we're gonna show the advertising community that this is nonsense, that they should be advertising online. And what what they're hearing is complete crap that, that the internet isn't dead. That's ridiculous. We, so we, 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 you know, it was the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, you know, all of these guys came together and we, you know, we created OPA, we hired, you know, the guy that I mentioned before who ran my games channel um, uh, at, 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 at AT&T now comes back. His name is Michael Zimblist and he's the, he's the, the founding president at OPA. And one of the things that he did, very creative guy, I mean, one of the things that he did very early on when he saw the research, he said, you know what? This medium reaches lots and lots of people in daytime. It's a daytime medium. Why? Because we still didn't have broadband. So where was the broadband, Andy? It was in In the the office, Right. (laughs) So all these people were using the the web from their office PCs and, and this was... The, you know, obviously it sounds obvious today, but no one had ever put, you know, a research project underneath of this. And he invented this phrase, daytime is prime time. And CNET, you know, another native, a digital native internet company um, focused on tech created a, a much larger ad position. It was actually, you know, aptly called the big ad. And that ad position, along with this research kind of began to revitalize the industry. And, um, you know, by 2002, you know, we were in growth mode again. And um, we were the first folks to adopt the big ad after CNET invented it. Um, we, we socialized it through the OPA, lots of people began to adapt it. And we, you know, so we we um, we, we really began to get the thing going again. and. Obviously, we could talk about internet advertising and, and um, what happened to it and, and all sorts of things. But if, at that time, you know, it was it was very very important that you know that that, that, that that the the advertising community understand that the internet was not going away. And I know that sounds absurd today, but lots and lots of people were talking about it in that context. So you you spent
0: seventeen years at the New York times, mm-hmm. you, you basically were an entrepreneur inside, uh, they allowed you to be the entrepreneur that uh, that probably is still flowing through your blood uh, but inside that corporate environment. So now you, you move into a more corporate uh, position still focused on digital. So so tell us a little bit more about that and, and, and what you focused on and worked on
1: um, in that corporate suite right so so what what happened is I mean there were lots and lots of theories about how to um how to build internet businesses inside of big companies and there still are by the way um they haven't gone away it's just that I'm, I'm referring back to to when we created new york times digital and one of the most important and the prevailing theory at the time was Clay Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma, which essentially said that, you know, you, you, you got a big problem if you're gonna to try to innovate inside. You, you've got to create a separate division that basically runs by the rules of that marketplace and frees the people to compete in the marketplace that they're in rather than uh, looking over at the traditional customer set, which is always gonna but basically, take you uh, in the direction that 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 is be- is in their best interest. So, for example, in the in the media business, the advertisers were not particularly, to, you know, interested in getting on the web. I mean, why would they be? There wasn't there wasn't enough reach. Um, the advertising was at that time reasonably ineffective. So, so we decided we were going to split. And we created New York Times Digital. And, and this was a sort of a common thing that Barnes and Noble had done it. Um, the ZD, the Ziff, the Ziff Davis folks had done it. You know, we're gonna, Disney had done it. We're gonna create a separate company and take that company public. So we created New York Times Digital in 1999. Um, I was actually on the roadshow for that company in 2000 when the NASDAQ crashed oh boy <laughs> and, so, and so there was no there was no market for the stock and, and that sort of in some ways thankfully there wasn't because it would have been a we would have had to have clawed back this. I mean it would have been a disaster so thankfully but but the management team at, at the times, which, which by then included me, decided that we should keep we should continue to keep New York Times digital separate in two thousand and five. We're now, you know, really, it, 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 really getting, we were by, by that time, you know, a, a very, very large, large website with, and we were maturing. And I think that the, the thinking at the times by then was, look, we, we can't really have two separate cultures here, a future culture and a past culture. We've got to have one culture. And so we decided to integrate the team from New York Times Digital back into the core business. And that integration project was a multi-year project, which, which became you know, a, a 80% of my job for, you know, for that period of time, pretty much until the, the great recession and the point at which, hey, we decided we needed a new business model here because advertising wasn't gonna cut it. I mean, all sorts of other things are happening at that time, remember? I mean, you know, we, Google is beginning to get, is beginning to get to be a very important company facebook is invented and you know it has it's not yet you know a big company or even a profit you know it doesn't even have any revenue i don't think at that point but it in 2005 but but the the point is that um you know you're beginning to see the earliest earliest stages of a different kind of approach to advertising a a web 2.0 approach to advertising and you know, another example of that was the platform company advertising.com, which I'm sure you remember. Mm-hmm. So th- th- we were going from a web one Oh world, which was essentially an analog world grafted onto digital to a genuinely digital world. And, um, that was going to be a different type of, 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 place to compete in. So, um, you know, we, we knew by 2008, nine, that, um, you know, we, we needed to take a a, a a look at that. So that's what happened. So
0: when 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 Arthur said to you, "This will be the last plant we we'll, we're gonna we're gonna build," uh, it made me think about disintermediation and that perhaps he even had the vision. You know, at that point, you know, to even make that statement. But up there in the the sea level suite was was that word bandied or you know tossed around Uh, did did you guys have the vision that newspapers were were going to really be
1: uh i can say the word decimated you know by the internet um i mean i think it depends on the person and i think it depends on the you know how how you define decimated i mean (laughs) i don't i i it's not like any and it depends on the time frame obviously um so you know I, if you go back to Arthur for just a moment, um, I, I think Arthur actually felt very strongly, and he said this to me many times, that, 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 that the internet was a natural place for the times to be in part because it freed the times from its distribution and manufacturing kind of um, um, chains. It, 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 it allowed the times to be a kind of global. Remember, Arthur is the guy that took the Times National. It was a New York-based newspaper, which had kind of a national. It had like a national edition that's you know that sold some copies in big cities, principally on the West Coast. And 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 but Arthur said, look, you know, we're going to make this investment and become a national newspaper. At a time when that, that wasn't necessarily an intuitive thing to do. Um, in fact, the Washington Post made the opposite decision, and I think it cost them the newspaper. Um, now, of course, today Bezos owns it, so it's a different, you know, it got a different set of economics, but <laughs> clearly. But, um, you know, at the time, taking a printed newspaper nationally was a big move. And so I think Arthur always had this notion that his brand was a bigger than New York and potentially global. We, we acquired the International Herald Tribune, fully acquired it. We owned half of it with the Washington Post, remember, in, in, you know in, in that time frame as well. So get, having a global footprint was something I think he had in mind, and the Internet would naturally help with that. I don't think he in quite envisioned. How destructive the internet was going to be to the ad- advertising business, you know, f- for, for media generally. Um, uh, you know, there was a, a chart in the Wall Street Journal last week which, which showed that finally internet or digital advertising was now more than 50% of total advertising spending, which for me was a, a big deal. Um, And, but, you know, something like 68% of the advertising fell to three or four companies, principally Google and Facebook. And so he didn't envision that. No one envisioned that. And that, overcoming that at the same time as having, you know, this big distribution channel that really is, it it, it does not require bricks and mortar um, is is kind of the, that was the trick, getting that to work. So you,
0: you you use the word national, you know, making New York Times a national uh, uh, publication. I know that you have a cause that's near and dear to your heart in saving local journalism. So can you expand on why you believe this is so important?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think for for most people, it's important should be fairly obvious. Um, you know, the the particularly big cities. Um, you know, have big governments, they have, most cities have big businesses, they have big universities. Um, these institutions, you know, are are just as prone to corruption today as they were 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, 200 years ago. And the most important watchdog from my perspective in, in any big, big city or in mostly any community generally has historically been the press. It's been, you know, uh, and, 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 and mostly that has meant, now that could change, but mostly that has meant in some form or another, you know, a fairly muscular set of, of, of journalists, you know, by muscular I mean lots of them um, gathered together to do this as a full-time job. It's not a two-person task to cover the, the city of Philadelphia. And, and so um, having that kind of heft um, is important paying for it is difficult. It, you know I, I, we just talked about the, the fact that adverti- you know Facebook and Google have literally hollowed out the local advertising marketplace. And I don't say that to blame them. I mean they sort of did that you know kind of naturally as a consequence of, of the benefits of their business. Um, on the other hand, they've done it more or less without much regard for its consequences. And so, the, the fact is that you know, we have, we have you know, lots and lots of cities now in the United States where the newspapers are basically just hanging on. And that's not a good thing. <laughs> that's certainly not a good thing, I don't think. So um, finding a model for these, for these newspapers, um, finding a way for them to continue to hold city governments, the big businesses in their cities, you know the the big academic institutions in their cities finding ways to hold these institutions accountable um, remains you know an, a, a, you know a very important thing to do. So that that's why I'm you know fairly passionate about getting getting that that done. Um, and um, today I'm I'm on the board of a, an organization called the Lenfest Institute, which owns which has as part of its portfolio the, the Philadelphia Inquirer. So um, it's a nonprofit, the, the Lenfest Institute is a nonprofit, but um, it, it, you know, it, it gives me some visibility into, um, you know, the, the difficulties of, of, of business transformation in these in these environments.
0: Well, we think it's a good cause. It's uh, important, uh, you know, you look at COVID as an example, right, you have a national uh, issue, but you a local paper is going to be more important to that local community. You know, they see, you might see all these numbers over here, but what does that really mean to me living, right. you know, in Poughkeepsie or wherever, you know, someone is, uh, is living. So I, I, I really applaud that. And, um, I, I, I would love to assist you in that in <laughs> endeavor. So we should talk about that some more. Uh so as, as we uh, unfortunately move towards the, the end of our hour here together, uh, you, 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 you did something that a lot of people do or, or think about, but don't do, I should say. Um, you, you, you became a professor, and you, know, you, you had that stint at Columbia, uh, which uh, I'm sure was you know, just a, a, a load of fun, but here you are now spending five years at Boston University, and I picked them because they're my alma mater. Um, so, you 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 were teaching digital communication. Mm-hmm. So, what what was that like? And and share some stories about how you set the curriculum, and you know what were students really looking for from uh, you know from from your courses.
1: Well, I have to you know, I have to start by saying at Columbia. Uh, at, the, at the journalism school, uh, I co-taught a course called "The Business of Journalism," which was invented by a, a couple of guys: Bill Gruskin, who was, I think, the number two person at the school at the time, and um, a fellow named Adam Klein, who had come from the Harvard Business School. <clears throat> and Adam, bit, Bill wasn't wasn't going to teach the course anymore. He, he asked me if I would do it right after I left the Times. I said I would, and so in in in. In September of 2012, I started teaching this course with Adam, uh, um, and I knew. I mean, Adam taught me everything I know about about teaching over a three-year period. Um, that syllabus was focused on journalism. Okay, it was focused on the changing, the changing news business. When I got to BU, and this was after a stint at at, at Harvard uh, as as a Shorenstein fellow, where we we're where, where I also worked with a couple of guys to create something called Riptide, which, was the history, which is an oral history of, of, of digital journalism. Um, at BU, because the communication school, as you know, having gone there, is very, very broad. It covers film and television. It also covers journalism. It covers public relations and advertising. It's sort of all media. It gave me the, it gave me the palette to expand what was the business of journalism to the kind of the business of, of all media. And so it was a, a really fun syllabus to build because you know I was drawing on cases in, in music and in cases in, in television in cases in in journalism and cases in book publishing, et cetera, in cases in advertising. And we were looking at all of these industries in transformation. And, and the exciting thing I think for the students is that they're they're kind of coming into a world now that is changed. It's it's no longer the world that we grew up in. It's a a new world. And yet a lot of the the business models, a lot of the folks who are still in that world and particularly in senior roles, still to this day, sometimes don't have, you know, a complete understanding of what's going on. And so, you know, I think uh, that, you know, the sort of the reason I think that the course got ahead of steam and I think got, you know, reasonably good reviews from students is because they they were really interested in understanding how these businesses transformed and continue to transform. And oftentimes what I would do is contrast some of the intrapreneurial activities with entrepreneurial activities, so that you know, um, and and so that for the folks who were in the class who wanted to come up on the entrepreneurial side, in other words, who wanted to start small businesses, they were interested in how these businesses were competing with larger businesses. So it it, it kind of served both sides, um, and and so you know, it was it was it was just a, a very fulfilling thing to do for five years. It was. Um, uh, the students at BU were terrific. Um, you know, I, I can't speak highly enough for the place. So you were very lucky to go there.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was, you know, Everyone always says the best four years of your life. Right. So, yeah. um, so tell me, you know, with all of this vast experience, uh, you, you know, there's people who complain and, you know, about digital media and social media and, and, um, you know, I personally still believe that, you know, this is a, an exciting world and period to be living in. So what, what what do you think about the future of social media and digital media? And if you could look at it from sort of the short term view and over the next few years, and then over the next five or 10 years?
1: Okay, I mean, I, I tend to look over these time frames and you know, it wasn't too long after I joined Ogilvy that um, I, I just, I just felt like we were in this hundred year transition. You know, I started to do some research and I learned about Vannevar Bush and the Memex and the, the early stages, you know, the early development of computing, the ENIAC and how, you know, the whole, the whole um, era of sorting came about with, with, you um, legal services and and other. And, you know, if, if if you look at this history, it's kind of a steady march over a very, very, very long period of time. I mean, this didn't start in 1995 or 19, it started really around World War II. And I think we're talking about a hundred year transition. And so a lot of, when you think that way, a lot of the stuff that happens in the near term becomes irrelevant. It's sort of like viewing the planet earth from, you know, 18 light years away. It's just this little dot, right? So anything that's happening now is kind of transitory. It's just, it's just this grand transition. It's just this hundred year transition that's taking place. And, and so that, that kind of lets you step back and say, "Okay, well, where are we in this transition?" And you know, for me, um, you know, I, I came in in 1979 at, at the very height of analog television strength, at the very beginning, the earliest beginnings of personal computing and 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 connectivity. And and so for me, it's been it's been you know 40 years of of that of that transition and there have been fits and starts. There was the dot-com bust and there were p- problems in the 1980s with the end of, of, of the video techs era and whatnot, but it's just continued to march. With respect to your question about, you know, the the next couple of years, I mean, I'm not sure precisely what's gonna happen, you know, in the short term with, with regulation and and how, um, how the government is is going to approach the, the situation that, that we find ourselves in with you know with these huge behemoths um, That to me is the in some ways the biggest wild card um, but um, um, I mean without getting too deeply into it, um, I've always been an internet optimist Andy. I mean I, I think that the reason I felt so strongly about this at the outset was that it, it 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 does what we're doing. I mean, you know, f- f- 30 years ago we couldn't be doing this. You you know right. you'd have to go through a radio network to get this done. And, <laughs> right. And in any event, um, I'm probably way too nichey for most people to even care about. So, so the the fact that this has created this explosion of voices, and by the way, not not a small number of, of, of startups that have become, some of which have become huge. But I mean, lots of people have created businesses that are not huge, but they're still businesses, right? Um, and and that's, that's been, you know, I think a, a, a hugely important and positive thing for society. Now, you know, you mentioned the word social media, there's a dark side to everything. And I think part of the reason there's a dark side is because there's a dark side to human nature right and that's not going to change <laughs> i'm sorry it's just not so yeah it can be really depressing to be on twitter it can be really depressing because you see the worst of humanity there um on the other hand you know you're on facebook and you're 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 kind of doing something with your bike group that was you know you're you're kind of organizing stuff in your community on something like next door so I mean, there are all sorts of positive things too. And I think sometimes we just focus on the negative too much. And, and, um, and I understand why, I mean, obviously lots of very bad things have happened in the last few years and, and DCN has been the, the, the successor organization of the OPA has been very, very focused on that. Um, if, if you go in and take a look at it, but, but at the same time, I, I'm, I remain an optimist. I think that, um, the you know the forward transformation of, of of our society into a digital one is is generally, you know, good for productivity and 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 adds tremendous value to to our lives. So um, call, call, call me um, Pollyanna, but that's how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> I think unfortunately, Martin, we've
0: got to end our our time today i'm uh, disappointed to say uh this has been a great trip down memory lane for me and uh too long since i've seen you but uh uh, i'm I'm thrilled that we got reconnected and uh love to work with you on some of these initiatives uh we are a big supporter of dcn by the way you know as well oh great we, uh,
1: i i couldn't quite tell from the conversation whether you'd ever heard of it before oh, yeah. so that's yeah, why i know
0: I, I i knew you know i knew about it when it was opa as well but you know more that's recently that's uh, duration mm-hmm. media has been uh, a, a big supporter and uh, we love Fantastic. what jason is, is doing yeah yeah he's um, great he's i think great. those premium publishers need a yeah, you know a, 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 a voice to be rewarded for the content that they deliver Right. Mm-hmm. So we 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 support that effort. Um, you 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 define what a net OG is for sure. No, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Remember, I say in in the, our teaser, we say you know it's uh, the, it's a net OG, not an old guy or gal. <laughs> it's yeah. the original. So. Um, Thank you for spending this time uh, well, with me. Well, thank you. I and, really appreciate uh, the time. I'm sure our listeners uh, will be thrilled to hear, you know, what what you have said today. So um, thank you. We'll, uh, we'll bid you to be safe and healthy and uh, we'll, we'll stay in touch. Okay. Thanks so much, Andy. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you by Duration Media. For more information on the company and its revenue generation ad tech, please visit their website at durationmedia.net. Like and follow this podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And if you like this episode, make sure to subscribe to the Net OGs on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your audio. So you'll never miss a single episode. Stay tuned for more interviews with Net OGs from companies such as DoubleClick, New York Times, Motor Media, 24-7 Media, Yahoo, NFL, Superbowl.com, and many, many more. To see the full list and learn more about the Net OGs, visit our website at thenetogs.com.